For nearly three years, Vina Najibula waited for the phone to ring. You'll remember from episode nine of China Rising that in December 2018, Vina's husband, Michael Kovrig, was arrested in China, along with another Canadian, Michael Spavor. They were accused of espionage, but the Canadian government claimed their detentions were political retribution for the arrest of Chinese telecom executive Meng Wanzhou in Vancouver at the request of the United States. He knows that we're with him. That gives him strength. That gives all of us strength. On September 5th of this year, Vina organized an event in Ottawa. Hundreds marched through the nation's capital, marking exactly 1,000 days since the two Michaels were arrested and calling for their release. That is what I focus on every day when I start the day and wonder what, what I can do today to bring that closer to, to reality. I mean, that is the mission. The goal is to get him on a plane to Toronto. And then, a couple of weeks after that march, a bombshell. Vina's phone finally rang. It's been a thousand and twenty days of working for this moment. The moment is here. Uh, I, I feel great. Uh, frankly, I feel fantastic. Uh, it's such a immense relief to be back in Canada, to be here home with my family again. Uh, I, I feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm Jeff Semple, Senior Correspondent for Global News, and this is China Rising, Episode 11, Freedom. A couple of weeks ago, we released what we thought was going to be the final episode of this podcast, at least for the foreseeable future. Over the past 10 episodes of China Rising, we covered a range of issues, from wolf warrior diplomacy to China's handling of the pandemic, to anti-Asian racism. But one of the biggest, best-known stories was the plight of the Canadians known around the world as the two Michaels, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor. Their detention galvanized Canadians and their allies and brought Canada's relations with China to the brink of collapse. When we last discussed their situation, the Michaels case seemed at a standstill. They were caught in a nearly three-year geopolitical stalemate between two superpowers, China and the United States, with Canada stuck in the middle. The Americans accused Huawei chief financial officer Meng Wanzhou of fraud and asked Canada to arrest and extradite her to face charges in the U.S. China, in turn, arrested the two Michaels, each claimed the other's charges were politically motivated. And for nearly three years, neither side seemed willing to back down. Then, just last Friday, September 24th, 2001, everything changed. Good evening, and thank you for joining us. We begin with major breaking news in the case of Meng Wanzhou. Meng Wanzhou struck a deal with American prosecutors. She appeared via video link in a Brooklyn courtroom and pleaded not guilty to the charges. But she also signed a legal document known as a Deferred Prosecution Agreement, or DPA. As part of the deal, Meng admitted to the very thing she'd been accused of, making untrue statements to HSBC about Huawei's business dealings in Iran. In other words, 
Meng admitted to wrongdoing while also pleading not guilty. If that sounds like a contradiction, you're not alone. A deferred prosecution agreement is a common way to resolve a case without the whole nine yards, guilty or not guilty. We asked Vancouver immigration lawyer Richard Curland to explain further. The deferred prosecution agreement is the speedy way to dissolve litigation. You don't need to go to the end of the litigation path to find guilty or not guilty. You can say not guilty and then admit to some wrongdoing. The case is closed by balancing the interests of both sides. You don't want to link the expense of litigation and you don't want someone to go scot-free. So the mid-ground is deferred prosecution agreement where you say you're not guilty, but you're admitting to wrongdoing and paying a hefty fine to resolve the litigation. Now, we don't know yet exactly how hefty those fines are, but Meng will not receive a criminal record, and the case is effectively closed. The charges against her will be formally dropped in December 2022. Her three-year extradition battle ended after 12 minutes in court. Over the past three years, my life has been turned upside down. For the first time since her arrest, Meng stood on the steps of the BC courthouse, faced the cameras, and read a prepared statement. It was a disruptive time for me as a mother, a wife, and a company executive. But I believe every clown has a silver lining. It really was an invaluable experience in my life. I will never forget all the good wishes I've received from people around the world. As the same goes, the greater the difficulty, the greater the growth. I'm also grateful to Canadian people and the media friends for your tolerance. Sorry for the inconvenience caused. And with that, Meng left for Vancouver International Airport to catch her flight home to China. That stunning news sent me and other journalists scrambling. I called every legal expert and Chinese political analyst I know, looking for any insight. I wanted to know, what did Meng's sudden release mean for the two Michaels? Most experts seem to agree it was good news that the Michaels would be released at some point, but likely not for some time. Vincent Yang is a legal expert at the University of British Columbia. How long does it, is this going to take? <laughs> Hard to predict. But I will say that uh, it's probably going to take a few more months because, you know, the, uh, that the legal proceedings uh, have not uh, com- uh, completed yet. Both men's criminal trials were held behind closed doors last spring in a Chinese courtroom. Kovrig was still awaiting his verdict, while Spavor was convicted last month, sentenced to 11 years, and ordered deported, though no date was set. What's more, Beijing had long insisted the charges against the Michaels were not connected to Meng's case. So, to keep up appearances, most expected the Chinese government would look to put some distance between the cases. 
by not releasing the Michaels right away. But that's exactly what they did. Just hours after Mung's release, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau called a rare Friday night press conference. About 12 minutes ago, the aircraft carrying Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor left Chinese airspace and they're on their way home. They uh, boarded at about 7.30 Ottawa time, uh, along with uh, Dominic Barton, Canada's ambassador to China. These two men have gone through an unbelievably difficult ordeal. Uh, for the past thousand days, uh, they have shown strength, perseverance, resilience, and grace. And we are all inspired by that. As I mentioned, Beijing had long insisted that the Michaels were not political prisoners and that their detention was not in retaliation for the arrest of Meng Wanzhou. And yet, the planes carrying Meng and the two Michaels crossed paths in the sky. Their departures were just minutes apart. Following their release, a Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson once again insisted that the Meng Wanzhou incident was completely different from that of Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor's case. And she added that many media, including Canadian media, have noticed that Canada should not do dirty work for the United States. Canada, she said, should learn a lesson. But the speed with which Beijing released the two Michaels following Meng's release was read by some experts as a chilling admission. Lynette Ong is a China expert with the Meng School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. The arrest of two Michaels are politically motivated. Um, I think it has really even removed the pretense of uh, lack of political motivation. Um, so, you know, I think the timing surprises a lot of people, including myself. I would have expected uh, coverage trial at least to play it out according to the law, according to the legal procedure to go through the courts, the Chinese courts, before he is actually released. I think it just goes on to show that the two sets of cases are very much interrelated and uh, politically motivated. In other words, she says, Beijing's actions spoke louder than its words. This was indeed a case of hostage diplomacy. On this Saturday night, home at last. The two Michaels land on Canadian soil. In the early hours of Saturday morning on September 25th, Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor landed in Calgary. They were embraced by Prime Minister Trudeau, and the two Michaels were even seen sharing a laugh. Spavor remained with his family in Calgary, while Kovrig traveled to his family home in Toronto. News of their release sent shockwaves around the world. It came out of nowhere. Yeah, I, I really didn't expect in my wildest dreams that it would That's happen. Michael Spavor's friend, Jacko Zwetslut. You'll remember from episode nine that Jacko lives in South Korea. He was supposed to meet up with his old friend, Michael Spavor, on a planned visit to Seoul the week he was arrested. 
at, at first, you know, I was all overcome and, and, and didn't know uh, how to feel about it. But then, of course, it was uh, immense happiness combined with relief. Just glad that the process is over and that Michael's ordeal is over and that he's back with his family uh, in Calgary. One of the most emotional scenes of the day came on the tarmac at Toronto's Pearson International Airport. Michael Kovrig stepped off the plane and into the arms of his wife, Vina. For the first time in a long time, she was smiling ear to ear. And to all Canadians who have been with us every step of the way, we were just telling Michael that everybody walked for him on September 5th and just kind of like showing and sharing the stories from these past 1,000 days. Thank you. I caught up with the Kovrig family a few hours later at their home in Toronto. Michael sat on a bench on their front porch, flanked by Vina and his sister, Ariana. I'm just still learning how to breathe again because I feel like I've been holding my breath for almost three years. Michael was freshly shaven, wearing a crisp white dress shirt tucked into blue jeans. He appeared thinner than in the photos I'd seen of him taken before his arrest, and I expected him to be withdrawn and quiet, but he seemed full of energy and life. Uh, I, I feel great. Uh, frankly, I feel fantastic. Uh, it's such an immense relief to be back in Canada, to be here home with my family again. Uh, I, I feel like I'm on top of the world, and I'm just immensely grateful uh, to everyone who has been working so hard for these over 1,000 days to bring both me and Michael Spaver home. Uh, it's fantastic. Thank you so much. And I'm really looking forward to do, you know, the future with my family. Vina had previously told me about how Michael spent his time in prison reading books and walking 7,000 steps around his tiny prison cell every day to maintain his mental and physical health. And from my brief moments with him, I was honestly amazed. He seemed sharp, lively, even quick-witted. He cracked jokes about how he hadn't seen a mirror in three years. Told me about how his first meal as a free man on board the plane was macaroni and cheese with a rack of ribs. And he joked about how the one silver lining of his ordeal was that he got to skip the pandemic. On a more serious note, he said... He didn't know much about what was going on outside his small prison cell, but he was overwhelmed by the support he'd received from Canadians. I didn't know most of what was happening in the outside world, but all the, the, the knowing that so many Canadians and others were aware of our situation and sending messages of support uh, really meant a lot to us. So thank you. Thank everybody for that. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's really genuinely celebrating with you guys right now. Thank you. you. In an interview with my colleague Mercedes Stevenson for the West Block, Vina and Michael were asked about that first hug on the tarmac. Indescribably intense, let's just say, and leave it at that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Yes. I think we just need some time now to heal and to rest, but thank you so much. Julia and Kevin Garrett know that feeling well. You'll remember the Canadian couple from the first episode of this podcast, 
They were detained in China under similar circumstances back in 2014, and they told me what it was like to hug someone for the first time in years. And I just think about the power of touch, the power of the hug. Like, no one's on your side when you're all alone in there, and even the people that you see are not really on your side. And all of a sudden, you have people on your side that can wrap their arms around you and hug you. And I'm just thinking, you know, of moments that they'll have with relatives and family and friends when just that even that touch to be Mm -hmm. that close and to know those people are on their side is going to make all the difference as they go forward and to start to heal what was your reaction when you heard that that these two were were free thrilled i mean just really exciting it took me back to you know when i was released and the the whole process i went through and then landing in vancouver it took me back to all those emotions and all that joy seeing my family and, and friends again it was really exciting yeah. yeah, and just thinking about all the firsts, yeah. like just imagining their family hugging and that that moment of just coming mm-hmm. together and the first drink of coffee that you can go get by yourself or the first <laughs> dinner that you can choose exactly what you want to eat. Like, oh, we're so happy for them. So happy for their family. I remember waking up the, fir- the very first morning after I arrived and, uh, you know, I just wanted a coffee. So we had to wait until Starbucks opened, which was nearby where we were staying. And uh, walking in there, getting a coffee and seeing my face on the front page of the paper, thinking, well, why is that there? <laughs> yeah, it was like, it, it just unreal. Like, Because, of course, I had no idea what was going on in the media those two years. I just had no idea. It's like, what am I doing on the front page? <laughs> but after that initial high from the homecoming, the Garretts also remember the long and difficult road to recovery. They're not going to just bounce back and jump into life again. It, it doesn't happen that way. They, you know, there has to, there's a lot of release attention that will take months to be released, right? Because they've been living under this tension and this uh, arbitrary situation for so long. They've un- unfortunately got used to so many things. They're living under the, the stress and the tension there. And it's just going to take a long time for their body to release it. I, I mean, I know for me, um, I thought everything would be normal when I got back, but it, it wasn't. And I, I really, I remember... It was 18 months later that I kind of woke up one morning and thought, I think I feel normal. But I didn't really know I wasn't normal before. And it takes that long to kind of, you're doing things, you can go out, you can meet people, things like that. You can do all that stuff, but there's not a normal feeling for some quite some time. Your brains are rewired because you think in minutiae, you think in seconds and minutes. And it takes a while to rewire your brain back to days and months and weeks. And we found that to be totally true. Yeah. Because you really have, they will have spent that many days thinking in seconds and minutes, not thinking in days and weeks and months. And even mm-hmm. that process takes a long time. And so there will also be this amazing rush of joy and those overwhelming feelings. And another thing that we were told first right away is um, people will be surprised by your joy and they'll think you're going to crash. But don't worry unless you get stuck because joy is a natural outcome of such kind of intense Mm -hmm. trauma for so long and give yourself enough time. And so, yeah, I'm just hoping they have an environment where they can have just be loved on where people are just showering them with kindness and they can just be healed in the middle of family and friends. The two Michaels weren't the only ones who received a hero's homecoming. Right now, here she is. Miss Meng Wanzhou waving her hand to the crowd and in very beautiful red dress. 
And also we can see the crowd is saying, welcome back home. That's footage of Meng Wanzhou as she touched down in her home city of Shenzhen, China, as it was broadcast on state-controlled television. She's seen stepping off the plane and on to a red carpet, handed a bouquet of red roses, and greeted by a crowd waving tiny Chinese flags. Meng then walked up to a microphone and, appearing to hold back tears, she read a prepared statement in Mandarin. Sorry if we'll keep you waiting this late evening. Finally, I came back home. After the torturous more than 1,000 days of waiting, I finally came back to the embrace of my motherland. It's a really big struggle for me. But when I came down and sight food on Chinese soil, I feel the warmth and I'm so thrilled. Right now, I'm back to you. As she spoke, a banner at the bottom of the screen changed to reflect her comments, and at times it displayed her words before she'd even said them. A visual reminder that Meng's statement had been vetted and approved by the Chinese government and provided to Chinese state television ahead of time. And during her speech, she touched on one of the Chinese Communist Party's favorite talking points. As an ordinary Chinese citizen, I've suffered for three years overseas. Every moment of my stranded overseas, I always can feel the strength and warmth given by my people and the government. General Secretary Xi is concerned about the safety of every Chinese citizen. He has also cared about me, which has moved me deeply. With that, the crowd and Meng broke into song, the Chinese national anthem. This is very much um, for a domestic audience as, as much as it is, it is for a, a foreign audience, is to show that this is not just a, a, an individual case, that this is really a case, Meng's case is one of um, humiliating or assaulting or affronting the Chinese people. That's Diana Fu, a Chinese political expert at the University of Toronto. So one of the interesting things I've noticed in the recent years, or excuse me, not recent year, but um, the recent month, is that the Chinese government has stepped up a campaign through the state-led media that goes hand in hand with a very common narrative that you'll hear a lot in Chinese politics, which is that China has long suffered at the hands of foreign abuse and at the hands of foreign humiliation, and that now it's time to step up and to face up to countries like Canada. Professor Fu, like many of her colleagues, believes that even now that Meng and the Michaels are free, the damage done to Canada's relationship with China will endure. Tensions between Canada, between Ottawa and Beijing, are going to persist. Now, why is that? It's because the tensions are based on fundamentally divergent political values, right? So Canada has values of human rights, has values of... um, of upholding, you know, uh, political rights that are enshrined in the charter. 
And China doesn't see eye to eye with that. They see that as uh, an imposition of Western values on Chinese values. So, you know, Chinese values being social rights are more important than political rights. And so I think you, you'll see, Jeff, that um, even if the Hmong affair goes away, that Ottawa and Beijing are going to continue to butt heads over issues of human rights. Lynette Ong from the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto points to public opinion polls in many Western countries, including Canada, which show the vast majority of Canadians now hold an unfavorable view of the Chinese government. I think that the, the damage is definitely, if, if not permanent, it is definitely not temporary. So I, so I don't think we are in the same position as we were pre-2018, even though the two Michaels are now home. Uh, we have moved on into a new, a different era. Um, the Canadian government is aware of what sort of uh, power China is. It is a rising power, but also an increasingly belligerent and uh, confident one. It is not hesitant to act unilaterally. And, you know, the onus is now up to the Liberal government to come up with a coherent China policy as to how we have to deal with this rising power in the near future. Over the past 11 episodes, we spoke with dozens of people, many of whom either grew up in China or have devoted their personal and professional lives to studying, working and living in China. And many of them told me the same thing. They no longer feel safe traveling to China for work or even a holiday because they're worried about what happened to the two Michaels and fear they could be next. That distrust now dominates Canada's relations with China and presents a challenge for Canadians and their governments because, like it or not, we are talking about one of the biggest stories of this century. How will Canada and its allies in the West respond to China rising? Thanks for listening to this special episode of China Rising. This podcast is written and produced by me, Jeff Semple, with producers Dila Velezquez and Kamyar Razavi. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. You can help me share this podcast by telling a friend. And don't forget to rate and review China Rising on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at JeffSempleGN. And you can email me at Jeff.Semple at GlobalNews.ca. Thanks again for listening to this season of China Rising. And please keep a close eye on this space for future episodes in the months ahead. As these stories and others develop, we hope to see you back here again. Take care and talk soon.